Hello, my name is Philip Camella, and today we're going to have a conversation beyond science and religion. Breaking new ground in thinking, exploring the outer limits of what we know about the world and ourselves, unhindered by common beliefs and perceptions. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. Taking on subjects from the Big Bang, the multiverse, and evolution to the supernatural and the new rising consciousness. This is where scientists, philosophers, New Agers, and spiritualists come together to discuss where this world may be heading. Now here's your host, lawyer, philosopher, and the author of The Collapse of Materialism, Philip Camella. Now one of the things that we notice about science is that science says to look at the evidence first and then come to your conclusions. It says to show me and show me by proving it to me. But there's one place where this principle, this scientific principle, starts to break down and is causing a lot of turmoil in our intellectual culture, and that is the topic of design. It seems that the more science looks at the world about us, the miracle of life, fine-tuning of the universe, the mathematical structure of the cosmos, the more we start seeing something that looks like design. And we can go back very far on the topic of design, the famous William Paley example where if you find a watch on a beach, it does suggest a watchmaker, a designer. And then, of course, Richard Dawkins, his famous book, The Blind Watchmaker, tried to destroy that concept, arguing that the incremental steps of evolution showed that a designer was not necessary. And that debate, by the way, is still going on. I don't think that despite Dawkins' very... Uh, very fine writing style that he's been able to overturn William Paley's designer. Then we have the the example of, from Fred Hoyle, which is one of my favorites, where he compared the odds of life coming from random mutations to a tornado going through a junkyard and assembling a Boeing 747. So we have a lot of tension in in the in the science field right now about this fine-tuning issue, which is which led, which is led, by the way, to this thing called the anthropic principle, and taking that a step further to one of my favorite topics, the multiverse. Now, this brings us to today's guest, Christopher Knight, who has spent a lot of time on this topic and has taken and has taken an original perspective on it. His new book is called God's Blueprint: Scientific Evidence That Earth Was Created for humans. Now, Christopher Knight has written many books. He's uh, including The Hiram Key in 1996, which was an international bestseller, appearing in 37 different languages. And outside of his historic researches and writing, however, he's also the CEO and chairman of a leading international digital and social media enterprise. Uh, and and apparently does this part-time, but what he does, as we'll see on the show, is to do it in a very, very original and approachable way. Christopher, welcome to the show. Thank you, Philip. Good to be talking to you. Well, I was just saying before the show that I think your book, uh, God's Blueprint, is a contribution to this field. And But before we get into it a little bit, what led you to write a book about this topic at this time of your career? In a word, evidence. Um, I've been dragged kicking and screaming uh, where the evidence has taken me and I didn't want to go. <laughs> um, I'm, my background is certainly agnostic to the point of almost atheism. I'm skeptical about most things and um, I, I've always liked to see the, the evidence and the proof. Um, but I've had to comp- since 1976, I've been researching uh, from a very odd beginning, uh, reported in the Hiram Key, as you mentioned. But um, having opened a doorway into the past, it's kept on opening more and more doorways, and I've kept on going and researching. And it's taken me to some very uncomfortable places. Uh, and this book has taken me over five years to 
have the guts, I guess, to put it down on paper because it's not what I choose to believe, uh, but it is what I have to believe because it's there. And um, a lot of things that I would have um, poo-pooed um, 10 or 20 years ago or less, um, I've had to embrace. Uh, life is certainly not uh, simple and mechanical and Dawkins-esque at all. Yeah, the one of the things that comes across here is, as you say, that you seem to have followed the evidence and come to the conclusion that the evidence shows. And let's talk about what you think are some of the more compelling lines of evidence that are lead that that are leading you to conclude that there is a God uh, behind the scenes. And bef- but be- but before we do, and I, I just want to make sure that we 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 strip down these concepts here because I I've used the word God here. I've used it. It's in your title. And a lot of people have these preconceived notions of God, these images in their sure. head. So let's talk about what what God you have in mind in your title. Because I, I think this is important is to lay this down in the beginning here. Sure, absolutely. Um, I, in the beginning of my book, I, I've sort of laid out the way I use or define certain words like religion and God. Um, because it does... Uh, have a, a baggage with it, but there isn't a different. There isn't another word that can be used. Um, but I'm not meaning the God of Christianity or Islam or Buddhism or any Hinduism or any religion. It's not connected to religion. It, it is uh, the creative force that uh, the intelligent creative force that brought everything into being and has a plan um, and is indeed still wanting to communicate with us directly um, and appears to be wanting to do so right at this time. Um, so it's it's not male, it's not female, it's, it's not identifiable other than that. It is inescapably there. Yeah, the, and this is, this is very important because of a dichotomy that I think exists in the science religion debate. Sure. And that is that, in my opinion, many scientists are so antagonistic towards intelligent design or creationism uh, or, or its various um, subgroups because they think that by bringing a God mind into their equations, they are giving into biblical literalism. And I think that that is, that is a problem we're having, and it is encouraging that people like you, and I, I'm going to say Michael Behe is another example, uh, who in his book, uh, Darwin's Black Box, uh, even though he is a Christian, he does say that his, his argument doesn't show that the God of the Bible exists, it just shows an intelligence exists. And, and, and this, to me, is extremely important, Christopher, because I think it's something that we have to break away from. You mentioned yourself that you sort of, if I could paraphrase, uh, were led kicking and screaming to this conclusion. Uh, because it is against uh, the mainstream scientific viewpoint, and and it's to me sometimes I don't know how much of this is sociological and how much of it is logical. You know how much how much do we resist this because of our because of peer pressure as opposed to the evidence. But I asked you a question uh, a couple minutes ago. And we did that little segue into the into God, uh, and we'll have time to explore this further. But but my question concern. Um, what evidence uh, do you think you found that was the most compelling to lead you towards this direction that there is a a God behind the scenes? In uh, my book, God's Blueprint, I've sort of laid out the philosophical um, backdrop uh, and tried to tease out the difference between science and religion and the meeting point, because most scientists, good scientists, certainly do not disbelieve in God. Um, and I think there's a lot of people who call themselves scientists who are technicians. And But any more sophisticated scientist is much more likely to uh, to be open to the idea of a creator, of a, there being a purpose and a design. Now, to answer your question, how I, I got into it, um, I guess 
it was uh, what, sort of 15, 18 years ago when I first started to look at megalithic uh, structures um, in Western Europe. Um, because I was looking at uh, the work done by a professor of engineering from Oxford University who found that uh, people in the in prehistory, the, the Neolithic period, about 5,000 years plus ago, were using a very, very accurate unit of, of measurement to construct all their sites, like the later uh, Stonehenge and thousands and tens of thousands of them. And they were using this unit that was finer than the width of a human hair all across thousands and tens of thousands of square miles. And he was poo-pooed by uh, archaeologists because they said, what does this mathematician engineer know about it? Uh, the maths building at Oxford is named after him. Brilliant man, spent 50 years studying these sites. And anyway, I had the hunch um, that if this unit really did exist, it would have been taken from nature, that it would not have been an arbitrary unit of measurement and therefore with my colleague Alan Butler we set out to try and find if there was something in nature that could produce this precise unit which indeed we found and that is the the turning of the of the earth and from uh, observational astronomy which gauges the movement of the earth uh, as seen by movement of the stars and planets and heavens they could create uh, measurements of time from time they can use pendulums to create units of length and capacity and weight and all sorts and um, I found that there was a superb theoretical model based on the number 366 because the earth rotates in its axis 366 times it appears to be 365 because we go around the sun and it sort of wipes exactly one day off but the earth if you look at a star turns 366 times and this number 366 was enshrined in prehistory into their mathematics and it unlocked Pandora's chest a completely amazing array of heavy duty science and I involved quite a number of academics in that not archaeologists by and large because they're, they're they're very dubious because they say, well, these people just had crude pots and they were hunter-gatherers who then started farming and so on. Um, so that they can't see it, that they could have had this superb engineering, but they did. And then we found that the, Alan Butler and myself found that the these units that they used led directly to the imperial system of the pound and the pint and the mile and the foot and the inch um, and the acre uh, and the gallon um, but also the metric unit equally uh, describes exactly the um, the kilo and the litre and the kilometre and the metre and the second of time um, all of these are completely with huge accuracy and checkably embedded into this ancient system and I demonstrate in this in my book that a man can be washed up naked on a desert island without any tools and if he's got the knowledge which I've got because I've reconstructed it you can reproduce all of those units to huge accuracy now uh, Thomas Jefferson came across this with his own calculations when he tried to get new systems of measurement for uh, the, the fledgling United States and he was puzzled. He said there's some hugely ancient science behind all this. It's not mere happenstance. And he was only tugging at the corners because of the information that was available to him. But he was a brilliant man and he spotted it. And this was pretty amazing, obviously, um, that this huge accuracy was available. How could they have done it? These people work, did live crude lives. Uh, but then, as I point out in my book, if you were to go to Switzerland, uh, tens of thousands of years in the future and uh, find a circular tunnel underneath um, uh, a mountain. You might imagine it was for religious purposes, but it's not. It's for to Hadron Collider. It, yeah. it, it's, it's deep science. Yeah. And that's what these guys were doing thousands of years ago. But then the real trouble started when we realized that not only did it describe the units of measurement, it describes the Earth in every detail, its mass, its speed of turning, 
they segmented the earth everything was perfectly round numbers and not only that um, it connected to the moon and the sun and they were exactly into it so it was like looking at the design of a machine if you could look at a modern motor car uh, a million years in the future you deduce the metric system because it's built using um, a system of measurements and you could deduce it well that was perfectly clear and the earth moon and sun unerringly every aspect every single aspect uh, of rotation of orbit of mass of density of um, circumference um, of volume it once you use this system it becomes completely clear it's not random it's not um, uh, it's like a divine system so I could you know call it God's blueprint and then you look that without all of this working exactly as it does we wouldn't be here yeah. so it is machine-like yeah, and what you're what you're talking about here, and this is this is very interesting, and I have not seen this study, this type of study before. Although it looks as if you you've touched upon it in some of your earlier books, and maybe others have have written about it. But but what we're talking about here is is ratios between some of the uh, fundamental measurements or. Uh, Values of of the Earth, the Sun, and the Moon, and also some very curious mathematical relationships. Like I'm looking right here, it it, it really struck me uh, this number twenty seven point three two two, which you talk about is the circumference of the Moon is twenty seven point three two two percent that of the Earth, and the rotational period of the Moon is exactly the same twenty seven point three two two. And this, this to me, and I frankly don't know, Chris, Chris, which which one of these is more amazing, <laughs> but because I haven't had the time to to really think about which one of these, you know, ratios or measurements, uh, you know, is more amazing than something else. But but the picture put together here is sort of like an interlocking web. Or, or, yep. or actually, a, it, it's like a machine. I'm thinking of, and I hate to say it, but like a watch where all the gears sort of mesh together and everything sort of spins and works. But it even goes beyond that because your conclusion is that the, the, the from from the Stone Age or long ago that that early uh, builders use these ratios to lock in constant and which i which i think is really amazing now it might help the listener for you to really be a little bit more specific about one of these because we mentioned a 366 i just mentioned a 27.322 but this is not just numerology here this, no, is, that's this, all, is, no. this is not just you know well the number 666 is the devil or something <laughs> you know this is this is measuring the the the, the earth the the sun the moon and finding these ratios which which have dictated much of the measurements that science uses so what what which one uh why don't you tell us about one with more um you know uh exactness here that or or, or more specificity so the listener could get an understanding of how this is really science that this is science and not just you know number gazing um, it certainly isn't number gazing, and it's not numerology. Of course, the, those that want to poo-poo it will just look vaguely in the direction and see numbers mentioned and assume it is numerology. Right. You've hit the, the key word, is that these are ratios. Um, therefore, they're, 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 they are real and checkable and testable. Um, we've had lots of, uh, say, we, Alan Butler and myself, when we were first bottoming in this, uh, we've had lots of... Um, physicists, chemists, mathematicians look at this and they all say inescapably it's factual yeah. you know, anyone can check it and you don't have to have a maths background I haven't got uh, math in my background so um, it, it's pretty simple stuff I mean it takes a bit of concentration but it's, it's not difficult and it doesn't matter where you start um, because it, everything that, without exception is part of this pattern Whereas there's an assumption that everything's a bit chaotic and number values are um, um, 
unrelated. You know, the, the, there's the idea that um, uh, in the distant past, everything was vague numbers, like, you know, the, from the, the king's nose to the end of his finger was a yard and whatever else. Right. Um, that's actually when this thing started to break down. The further you go back, the more greater the accuracy, um, fine, fine accuracy. Um, but it also links to the to the you know things like the speed of light, um, and today people imagine that the uh, the second of time is completely unrelated to the meter, for example. And there is an academic paper uh, that you can find on the internet from uh, Rome University saying, why is it that a meter just happens to beat at one second? Well, the reason it does is because. That's what a second, how a second was defined 5,000 years ago. Hmm. Um, and the, the second is one of the most ancient uh, known units because uh, we know the Sumerians used the second of time. Um, but they, they also used the meter and the kilo and the liter. Um, another Italian professor of metrology demonstrated that. But again, the world didn't, wasn't ready to, to, to deal with that. Um, they think, oh, no, the French invented that. Uh, um, in the 18th century, no, the end of the 18th century. No, they didn't. They reinvented it by reverse engineering it. Um, the, the the Greeks measured the circumference of the Earth, and it came out in a very strangely round number of Greek feet. But the reason it did that is because the Greek foot was derived from the knowledge of the circumference of the Earth in the first place. <laughs> so they just re-engineered it, reverse engineered it. Um, so the further you go back, the greater the accuracy. Um, and if you split the Earth into the 366 segments, which they did, they had 366 degrees, um, and then take a section of the, the Earth, it, its mass is completely in round numbers in, in terms of pounds. It, all of the discrepancies disappear once you use this system. Uh, but we, we know that the... Um, the speed of light, um, because the Sumerians worked in six, six, sixes and tens, sixties um, and six hundreds, and that was the way their maths worked. And the, there are six hundred of their uh, units um, to the, in the speed of light, which we think is just under three uh, three hundred thousand three hundred thousand meters a second. Is that right? It's, yeah, I think it's kilometers, but I think it's kilometers. Kilometers, right. so, yeah, factor of a thousand, yeah, kilometers. Uh, a second, but that's uh, because it's based on this ancient unit, and it's very, very slightly out because the, the French uh, changed it very slightly to uh, to neaten it up for their purposes, um, as indeed uh, the United States changed the um, the, the pint, uh, to, so it had also got sixteen fluid ounces to match the sixteen ounces of a pound, which is actually a mistake. It should have twenty. Hmm. Um, yeah. Well, that's we, that, that's probably good for the American pubs, but but leaving that aside, yeah. go ahead. I mean, yeah, sixteen. Yeah, yeah, sixteen. Yeah, um, go ahead. Yeah. So the doesn't matter where you enter the system. Um, this, this unit that was identified by Professor Alexander Tom, this guy from uh, Oxford University, that measured over 50 years all these megalithic sites he called it the megalithic yard um, 82.966 um, centimetres and this unlocks everything because if you take uh, a tenth of that length and make a, uh, a cube which is what they did to make, produce the litre from the metre, they took a tenth of a metre and made a cube and filled it with water, distilled water and that was defined as a litre you do the same thing with a megalithic yard and fill it with water, it's exactly one pint. You double the size of the, the size, and it's exactly one gallon. Wow. And everything just fits together like this huge jigsaw puzzle. Yeah, that, um, it's, it's unbelievable. Uh, Go ahead. It, it, it is unbelievable. So the, the big difficult question was how did these people that were apparently very rude and crude, you know, Stone Age man, understand all this? And my best shot at answering that is that they had a system of science which was in one way much more sophisticated than ours. And that is that they knew how to lock their brains into the pulse of the earth, if you like. Um, literally, they could um, 
connect themselves you know, using um, electromagnetic uh, uh, creations that they built with stone, which are still there. We know they did it. Um, I've experienced it myself. Um, and they connect, they plug themselves in and somehow this allowed them to, to see these great patterns um, yeah, and, yeah. Deduce, uh, and deduce the system of, of metrology, of science that is still with us today. Um, so the, the, there is a certain amount of weirdness to all this, but sci science has become today sort of sterile and, and, and mechanistic, whereas we know uh, from quantum mechanics that it's anything but uh, yeah. simple, direct and logical and uh, it, it's weird um, and therefore we have to accept this weirdness it, it extends in other ways and the human brain and, and, and they say other creatures uh, li living animals on this planet can also plug into these things and have some sense of understanding of what's going on yeah well i think i think what you're saying here and this is uh, there, there's a lot of um thoughts that come to mind ideas that come to mind as i'm listening to you and as a and i was and i was reading your book but it really is a function not only of the ratios which of course to me brings up kepler's music of the spheres but it's the fact that the ratios are locked in and and that that is something that is necessary for science to occur. You know, it's funny that you know science assumes that the laws of physics are constant throughout the universe, and just like the DNA molecule is constant, and and uh, we we have to assume that the that the you know the sun will rise uh, constantly throughout throughout the the time here and that it that clouds create rain and that the plants grow and all the all these things are are necessary for us to live but this is like fundamental this goes to to locking these locking in these ratios and as you said in the beginning and this is this is really a profound finding i think that anybody on a desert island with enough time and some insight can derive these fundamental units of measurements by observation and by some experimentation and that these measurements form part of the, the scientific investigation of the world. And so this to me is is extremely interesting because it does suggest something going on behind the scenes. Now, did, did you, in, in, in doing this, I, I, wanna, I want to point out something else that you put your finger on that is ev that's really easy for people to sort of ponder, and that is how the, the sun and the moon appear the same size in the heavens, which something that we, we, we take that so much for granted. But you, you point out that there's also a ratio that allows that to happen. Why don't you talk about that a little bit? Okay. Um, in, in terms of megalithic yards, this unit of measurement uh, that I mentioned breaks down using 366 degrees on the Earth. Well, exactly the same thing happens on the uh, the moon, but it's a hundred degrees. That's the relationship, the ratio. And the sun is forty thousand, because the sun uh, is four hundred uh, times further away than the moon. Um, exactly. Um, there are tiny movements, obviously, in both, but essentially that's the case. So they appear from the surface of the Earth to us humans to be the same size. They are both exactly half of a megalithic degree. That is where there were 366 degrees. So you put them side by side in the sky and they're actually, they fill exactly one megalithic degree, one 366 of the horizon will be filled by the sun and the moon, which is part of the majesty of it. But it, the, the moon is 400 times closer. Uh, than the, the sun to get that effect and 
why 400 you know why not 393 or something it's all of these um, ratios are exact now scientists who um, astronomers know that in terms of observational astronomy it is really seriously weird that they are the same size yeah why should they be I mean yeah, and, and I might add, yeah, I might add here, it's not something that you read about in the science magazines, because I read a lot of science magazines, and, and I have a bunch of, uh, I have a number of textbooks on science, and I don't recall anybody ever pointing out these, this 400 ratio, the, the, uh, the moon being one four hundredth the size of the sun, but 400 times closer, and therefore they cancel out. I mean... That to me is an unbelievable coincidence, you know, suggesting that somebody just put them there. I mean, I mean, and I and and we'll have time to to um, reach some conclusions at the at the end of the show here. But you know, you put some of the stuff together, and it it really does suggest strongly that there is something else going be behind the scene that there's something going on behind the scenes here this is philip camella this is conversations beyond science and religion i'm speaking with christopher knight the author of the new book god's blueprint scientific evidence that earth was created for humans and this by the way is scientific evidence uh this is a very well done research book and uh christopher is pointing out some things here that many people overlook uh in in the in the structure of our cosmos here now 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 Christopher you just don't focus on the metrology uh, the the measurements which is which is original I think and is extremely interesting and thought provoking but you also point out some other features that peep that we tend to overlook you have a a section for example on glass rubber and gasoline mm-hmm. and we take for granted these things just like frankly we take almost everything for granted but for example what what is the oddity about glass that got your attention here yeah um that's always sort of puzzled me because if you think you're driving around uh, in, in a motor vehicle um, and you didn't have a, a clear windscreen in front of you, it would be quite difficult. And if you didn't have a mirror to see behind you, it would be quite sort of difficult. And it's really strange that quartz produces this completely clear material. It's always yeah. sort of struck me as odd. Yeah. Um, and I hadn't thought a lot more about it, but then you think about other things that are odd, like the existence of rubber and the existence of gasoline. Um, and you start to sort of say, it's rather, you know, if you were writing the script for this uh, human condition, you, you were inventing it, um, you'd sort of write this into your grand plan because these things have no real reason to exist. Um, and you mentioned the anthropic principle earlier on, which basically says everything as, is as we see it, otherwise we wouldn't be here to see it, which is a self-defeating argument. It's pretty yeah. meaningless. Yeah. Um, it doesn't help. Um, so I, I put that chapter of uh, um, about those three materials in just to sort of point out how odd it is that we've, we've got those things. And, of course, I also talk about um, is gasoline a fossil fuel? because there's a theory that a pretty wacky theory that it is but that wacky theory is taken as fact and taught as fact in schools it's not fact at all um it's a very fringe theory that a lot of serious scientists have pooed uh but you don't get that reported a great deal in the in, in, in the popular uh press um it, yeah. it, it is um things are not as they seem uh, we all take life for granted because we have to do really you can't go around worrying about things too much so you get on with life but when you actually step back there's some pretty weird stuff going on well i'll tell you something that there's a couple of things that have always puzzled me and and i think glass is a great example i mean how is it that what heating pounding sand whatever they do yeah. to it to mm. to create this transparent hard substance uh works and then, but and then, if you go back, it, it, it's always amazed me. Like when you go back and you and you read about how the 
the the the early humans first developed steel or fashion yep. fashion rocks into weapons i mean who came up with these ratios i mean how would they know to to heat different different metals and combine them into something that is hard and and and, and can be pounded and can withstand heat uh, and the same, and the same thing for recipes. I mean, the the little the little quirk of recipes. I mean, why do the herbs uh, match together? You know, the oregano and basil and spaghetti sauce, or mint and and lamb, and and you you know you could go on and on with how is it that all these things just 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 seem to fit together? And it's it, it's re- it's similar to the the ratios because. It's, it shows that there is some kind of interlocking uh, feature to to the cosmos that science up to now has even has either overlooked or ignored and and to me one of the things that I I try to do on this show and in my own book the class of materialism is that when you take away your preconceptions and you just look at the evidence yeah the evidence points in a direction that shows to me that there is something behind the scenes now now let's let's talk about this for a second here because you know we've already mentioned the anthropic principle um, and you yourself went through it seems to me a long thought process long period of evaluation consideration into what this all meant or what this all means so so at what point have did you conclude that that the evidence shows that there is a god behind the scenes what what was the tipping point for you um well i i wrote a book um with, with with Alan Butler called "Who Built the Moon," which was a bit of a bit of a um, scary title. Yeah, um, but, to put it mildly, but <laughs> the evidence absolutely is that the the moon is not like any any other known object anywhere in the universe. It breaks all of the rules um, and displays. And uh, discussing the, the, this with NASA people, displays lots and lots of indicators that it is, for want of a better word, artificial. Hmm. Now, human life on Earth wouldn't exist. Uh, And and we just mentioned about them both, the moon being appearing to be the same size as the sun in the sky. That's only recently. That's only in the, what we call the human period, the last, uh, whilst there have been Homo sapiens sapiens here, because it used to be a lot bigger, a lot closer. And it needed to do exactly what it does it's ma- the moon's mass is very very low for its size it used to be really close in and it sort of plowed the earth and put all the minerals and the nutrients um into the earth um uh, c- created tectonic plate shift which is very necessary for for life um and it's it's been like a mother hen um holding um like an incubator to, to, to create intelligent life and to keep water um, over large parts of the planet in a liquid state, not as a gas and as a solid, which is essential for intelligent life um, because you've got to have mobility and we're all based on carbon and liquid, uh, i.e. water, um, it's mainly made of water. Um, so uh, in, in understanding the moon is absolutely with the sun, essential for life on Earth. Um, and the distances being, uh, and the amount of radiation of the sun, everything being crucially accurate. I sort of thought, well, what's the three, I could only think of three possible ways that that could have come about, not by accident. That, that, that's just too silly. You've got to be a very silly person to stick with that argument if you're really looking at the facts. Uh, a lot of so-called scientists will say, oh, it's just coincidence. But that's because they're too lazy to, to deal with the facts. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm not impressed by those people. Whereas there are a lot of heavy-duty scientists who have looked at it and have said, there's something wrong here. You mentioned Fred Hoyle. He's a very good example. Um, or, or Anthony Flew, who changed his life after 
uh, changed his mind after a lifetime of being a an atheist. Um, he said, the evidence says there is a God. Sorry, in his 80s, got to change my whole lifetime's work. So um, the there's an incubator there to, to produce life on Earth. And the moon is such a, an important part of that. Who, who created it? Who put it? Who's, who's the plan? And I could only think of three solutions. One, aliens, life force from el elsewhere. But they did this a very, very long time ago because the, the moon's been there for billions of years. Um, and there wasn't really time for um, aliens to pop up elsewhere. And there is precisely zero evidence of aliens, despite what a lot of people claim. I've been unable to find any evidence of aliens uh, being there. I'm not saying they're not. So they were this theoretical um, group called, we call extraterrestrials, could be responsible for it. But I'm a great believer in Occam's razor, don't, in, you know, the principle of not inventing uh, things that aren't necessary. Right. And um, therefore, the, the, another thought was, well, it could be humans that built the moon, because we now know uh, from leading physicists that time travel doesn't break any rules but it is possible to send drones back in time, or it, it may well be in the future, be possible to send drones back in time to build the moon. So maybe humans did it. And then the other one was, well, God did it, which is sort of um, biblical or the scriptures or other religions that this idea of there being a creator entity. And that was certainly my least favorite uh, uh, route. But the more I looked at it, um, uh, the coincidence is like the carbon coming into existence. That's from the first moment of the so-called Big Bang. Um, this is way beyond the abilities of um, extraterrestrials. We're dealing about something that's been around since the first moment, or, or before, if you can actually say that. So I was brought... Well, you know, uh, Sherlock Holmes, you know, said, "Eliminate um, everything that's impossible. Whatever remains is the truth, no matter how unlikely it is." So, having stripped away all of the other potential candidates, I couldn't think of any more. I was left with this creative force, and for want of a better word, we've got to call that creative force God. Especially as that creative force is talking to us now, because the messages that are coming from the ratios on the moon and the sun are now not half a billion years ago or 10 million years ago they are now so this mathematical patterning that is being communicated to us is at us now he's saying this is the point and it seems likely that there's a connection uh, to reading these mathematical ratios and reading DNA now we know in junk DNA that there is huge so-called junk DNA huge amounts of data I think this may well be the, giving us the key to start to look into uh, DNA and get some serious messaging from the creator because that DNA has been there since life began. Yeah. Okay. So it's just a, okay. So just a second before we get into DNA. What? So what do you think about the multiverse? And for though, and I just got done reading slash listening to. Max Techmark's book, uh, Our Mathematical Universe, and there's quite a lot written on the on the multiverse, and he's a big fan of it, as is Brian Greene, as is Stephen Hawking. Uh, so, what, I was just reading this week that there are a lot of people turning their back on it, um, yeah. uh, that it's sort of going out of fashion. Yeah. Um, of course, the, the idea that if anything, if something can happen, it will happen somewhere. Everything does happen. Uh, and there's an infinite number of um, multiverses where everything is happening. It, 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 really, it could be true, of course, but it's about as helpful as the anthropic principle in that it's just a get out clause. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, I, I think it somebody. actually yeah. help. Yeah. I think somebody said uh, in a similar context a theory that explains everything actually explains nothing. And exactly. that's I mean that's one way to that's one way to put it. I I'm a I think the the multiverse is just a big excuse right now. It's amazing to me how much press it's gotten and I I'm happy and I I'm 
it's a little it's a little weird because there are some best selling books on it, but then again, there is quite as you point out, there's quite a growing uh, uh, group of of renowned scientists who are who are disparaging the concept for the for the very reason that it really doesn't explain everything. And I I, I, ra- I raise it because um, you know Christopher, when you look at the evidence. Uh, it's it's hard it's hard not to come to the conclusion uh, that that as Fred Hoyle said it it's a, it's a put up job I think he yeah. was going to say you know it's hard it's hard to come there and now now somebody is likely to say and I'm sure you have dealt with this well aren't you just intelligent design I mean isn't this just intelligent design with different with the, with different coverings on it what do you say to that absolutely not. Yeah. Um, the so-called intelligent design movement it, it appears to be um, a fundamentalist uh, Christian, although the, the fundamental Islam is not wildly different um, view that uh, you can they can justify their scriptures uh, by pointing out that um, everything was created according to their scriptures in the last four thousand years or whatever they wanted to believe. Um, and evolution is um, is wrong uh, because it was designed from the outset. Now, what I'm talking about has got no connection with that. They might be right. I don't know, but I find right. no evidence to suggest they're right. I mean, making statements like the the eye could never evolve; uh, it had to be designed is, is just fundamentally untrue. Um, now, <clears throat> they are right in that. The, uh, evolution is not a fact, it is a theory um, that has yet to be proved um, but um, I think um, there's no doubt that um, hu- humans have um, evolved um, over a huge period of time we didn't arrive fully made um, and um, the, the theory of evolution looks good to me by and large but there are some issues with it yeah, well, what I'm talking about is not numerology, and it is not intelligent design in that in that meaning of the words. Yeah, I I tend to think that one of the challenges in our modern times, Christopher, is breaking the dichotomy I mentioned earlier in yes. the show because sure. we, we have it's it's as if it's it's a either or question yeah. or a multiple the white choice hats ex- and the black hats right yeah. right a multiple choice ex- exam with only two answers to it and and but the, and the question is why do we exist which is a pretty big question you think that there would be two more than two possible answers and and whether it's because we like simplicity or whether the media has 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 put it this way or this us and them you know science versus religion uh, Dawkins versus the intelligent designers and they take this uh, this notion of intelligent design as the opposition, and they they treat it like a rag doll, and 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 just and, and just smash it around. But that's not what we're talking about here, and this is really uh, what I'm about, and really what I think the the um, the future of science is is sort of breaking down this unreasonable opposition to factoring mind into the into the equations. I mean, all the, most of the, I was going to say, I, was, I almost said all the great scientists, but most of the great scientists, including Einstein and Newton as being two examples, they knew, they, or they suspected that there was a mystery behind, behind the cosmos that had to do with the mind of God. I mean, they knew that. And, you know, Einstein, uh, despite the fact that he has really dominated uh, the the scientific uh, and the physics community for almost a century now. Uh, he he was he left the door open to to there being you know a a god in in the equations, uh, and that's something that we've lost sight of. I think with with this with this overemphasis on materialism. Um, so why not, so where do you think this leads in 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 for science? What what do you think? is going to happen here where we have books like... I've, I've always been of the view philosophically that technology was a bit of a cul-de-sac for humans. It's serving us quite well right now, but um, 
it got quite a high price to it in terms of losing our essence, our, our souls to some extent. I'm not being um, woo-woo or weird when I say that. Um, it, it, it is a, a practical observation. And I think um, science has has become, um, or the way science is perceived has become uh, debased um, in that it's become mechanistic and um, cause and effect and uh, very Newtonian in, in, in its um, uh, in its outlook but yet we know that you know this wonderful uh, I think science is the greatest thing ever invented for humans it's just astonishing um, but we know from you know the quantum um, theory that things are not at all um, simple or obvious or rational or logical it's outside of our um, way outside of our comfort zone and yet science is dealing with that now I think the problem about religion and given that the majority of scientists are, are not atheists um, some have got faith and some are um, agnostic leaving the door open but I think um, the idea is that the general public would assume that science and religion were enemies that they, they, they fight each other now religion is also, in my view, been weakened by overemphasis on their old scriptures, which are, I'm sure, hugely valuable and not to be um, disrespected in any way. Um, but they are, they are not necessarily the only routes to God. I mean, um, Christianity and Islam are relatively new religions, and unless the, the founders of those religions have taken a, a new look, you know the the world will be where it w was. You know, and if, if Moses hadn't kicked off Judaism, you know, uh, what, where would we all be? What is the original truth? Um, I think religions have come become, by and large, there are some honourable exceptions, too stuck um, in the the loop of uh, reciting their, their their ritual and their uh, their scriptures. Um, so the, the, there's, there's issues on both sides. And with this book I, that I've just written, I thought, who am I going to get the most problem from, scientists or religious leaders? And um, to get notice is difficult because the scientists think, oh, God, what flaky nonsense. It's, right. it's, it's talking about God, for goodness sakes. We all right. are, you know, so there's a lot of people that don't even want to open it because they think it's wrong. And then uh, people who are Christians or Jews or whatever think, well, th this is not sitting with my scriptures, therefore it's wrong. So yeah, know, yeah. it's only the the, not, the average sort of curious uh, person with spirituality that will pick it up and think, hey, this is, this is pretty interesting. Yeah. Uh, if these facts are correct, and indeed they are because they've been checked, then there's something really seriously weird going on and we've got to reassess. Yeah. Um, so my task at the minute is to try and force an uh, increasing number of um, scientists to look at it rationally without assuming that it's nonsense and equally uh, get some relatively open mind religious leaders to um, to look at it and think, is God speaking to us today? Never mind 2000 years ago or three thousand three and a half thousand years ago in Moses's case. Um, why would that dialogue go away? You know, yeah. I mean. Uh, I think now is the most important time because we've, we've now developed the ability to annihilate ourselves and um, or indeed to take ourselves on to the next step, the next stage. Uh, so we're like adolescents. Uh, we, can, uh, we can kill ourselves through our own hot-headedness and uh, with, with, with all of the energies of the newfound um, adulthood arriving or we can settle down and become mature, intelligent people and move on to the next step. But it, it, religion, philosophy and science have got to come together um, and, and not be frozen in time or not be the victim of preconceived ideas. Yeah, and, uh, as yeah. you say, the dichotomy. Yeah, and there, there's, a very, there's a very simple way to do it. Um, it's easy to express, but it's hard to do. And, and for religion, it is determining or accepting the notion that there that there might be a logical scientific way to God 
that revelation is only one way to God. And, sure. and I think that that is one of the things that comes across on this show, something I cover a lot uh, in, 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 in what I write, because who whoever said that only that only revelation can be used to find God only that you have to take everything on faith maybe there is a logical way to find God and I think that your book is that's what that's what it's about and that's what the fine tuning uh, argument is about um, that's what more and more uh, people and Paul Davies I would put in that in that category sure. who who are looking mm-hmm. at who who look at these myths that these uh, these accidents, you know, the accidental universe, the Goldilocks universe, uh, all these features of the cosmos that just are too odd to to arise by chance, and he keeps open the the possibility that indeed there might be a god behind the scenes. For science, all they have to do is get over this this uh, this mind block of theirs. Where where they think that if they let consciousness mind into their equations that they that they are becoming, you know, born again Christians or something. I mean, they they just cannot they just can't get over it. I mean, I I I'm I'm coming to the point where I simply want to say get over it because that's what the evidence is showing. I mean, to to me, I mean, a good example right now, and I don't know whether I don't think it was in your book, although you came close to touching upon it, is the value of of the uh, dark energy where, and I won't get into all the details, but the 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 value of dark energy uh, is out there, which is the the repulsive force supposedly in outer space that's causing the cosmos to accelerate its expansion is something like 10 to the 121st power uh, less than it should be. It's uh, that it's that if you add up all the energy in the in the vacuum energy, it's it should be ten to one hundred twenty one times greater than it really is. This particular fact uh, actually has led people like Steven Weinberg, uh, a Nobel Prize winning physicist, to conclude to to support the multiverse. But it can be also used like you use it in your book and like I use it in my book, which, which is to say, folks, we are living in a universe that has design to it, that is finely tuned. Uh, that's what the evidence shows. Let's, let's move on because to me, Christopher, what, what this, uh, the conclusion here is that if, to me, if science becomes more sort of uh, God-friendly or mind-friendly, then it's going to help us with the religious side of things. It's going to help us find something to agree upon um, as opposed to, you know, praying to separate gods and feuding over property and nationalities and religions and all that. I mean, it's it's sort of an idealistic way to look at things. But but, um, my whole thing is we got to break down the barriers because ultimately it's it's these barriers that are causing divisions among us. Absolutely. So, yeah, I think maybe we need a new vocabulary um, because I've used the word God to describe this, this entity, God's blueprint. And it's got so much baggage connected yeah. to religion yeah. um, and ancient scriptures that scientists just walk away from it. So maybe it's a, an issue of um, the language that we use, but yeah. um, we, we have to find a way to bring them together because I, 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 I've never had faith um, as such myself, and I've never been that impressed by the concept of revelation. But I can now see exactly that there is good reason to believe that certain individuals such as the people of the stone age receiving information about the the, the earth and the moon and the sun and understanding those things that revelation perhaps is a, a route to understanding the mind of the, the creator um so i, th- I think there, there there is room for religion and science to talk sensibly with each other uh, and both have got to sort of um, relax their preconceptions a, a little bit uh, for the greater good of us all. Yeah, now what, what do you say, before we end here, I'm going to ask you one one difficult question or one question that Richard Dawkins would ask, 
in his book, uh, The God Delusion, he says, yeah. well, who designed God? You see, this is that, that to me is one of their best questions. So wh- how do you deal with that question? Cause um, says, Thomas Aquinas dealt with that, I think, a long time ago. But um, yeah, That's true. That's true. Um, the... That that is based on um, like what happened before the Big Bang. Right. You know, yeah. There was no such thing as time, or was there? Yeah. You know, um, how could something come into existence when there was nowhere and there was no time? Yeah. So you've got to deal with that one way or the other. Yeah. Um. So, but the argument, I guess, is if you can't explain where God is and where what His address is and His telephone number is, He doesn't exist. Yeah. Well. No, we can say there's enough evidence here to say on grounds of probability, he, she, it does exist. Not not only did, but does exist. The greater mass of evidence says yes, not no. And because you haven't got an answer to all of the questions, doesn't invalidate it. Yeah, That's like saying science is useless unless it can explain everything yeah. of course it can't yeah no that's that's a really i think that i think that's really good and i think when if you want to if you are in a calm state of mind and you and you sit down and you say let's see now what what kind of world do i want to live in do i want to live in a world where 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 the final analysis leads to god or do i want to live in a world where the final analysis leads to a God particle, a a piece of stuff. There's a, there's a certain beauty in running the equations and concluding that at the end there is a God, a mysterious God behind the scenes, as opposed to a particle, as opposed to a you know some kind of Higgs boson somewhere. Mm-hmm. And and so it really is to me. It's a beautiful way to to. It's a beautiful ending, you know. Uh, and all the great thinkers, including as you said Thomas Aquinas. Aristotle had had the prime mover uh, as the original cause because the the uncaused cause the the cause that cannot be explained uh, it to me it it it, um, it creates a beauty to life. Now we quickly come to the end. We didn't have a chance to get into the DNA, which would have been interesting. Mm-hmm. But there's always time. There's always a, a a new show, a new day, and I I want to thank you for your time and it. It, which of course went by fast. Um, yes. You, you. Uh, why don't you quickly tell folks? I know I didn't mention all the books that you've written, but folks that want to find out more about your your books, uh, Christopher, and your research, how do they find out um, about you? Well, obviously, a visit somewhere like Amazon will will will, uh, will will show my my books over the years. Uh, I guess the, the the recent stuff that's. Well, relatively recent stuff that's led me to this, starting with a book called Civilization One, um, which, which is uh, lays out the the maths math that we originally found. Um, the, then there was Who Built the Moon, which was like dealing with the improbability of the moon's existence, and then before the pyramids, because several years on from writing Civilization One, we, we laid out a theory of this number system, and then we found the archaeological evidence. Uh, and the, obviously, the proof of a good theory is to find the evidence after the the event, yeah. which we did yeah. um, in grand scale, um, a thousand years older than the pyramids. Um, uh, and in fact, the pyramids were uh, were part of this scheme, but they were based on knowledge that was well over a thousand years old at that time. Um, so, uh, before the pyramids was the um, was the, the last book, which which got slightly hijacked because of what we found out was going on in Washington D.C., um, which um, is part of the the grand plan. Um, because my first book, the, the Harem Key, was where I started trying to find, which was trying to find out where the rituals of Freemasonry came from, which yeah. is a pretty tedious subject. Yeah. Um, but yet it, it it sold millions of copies uh, worldwide. Um, because it had to deal with the origins of Judaism and Christianity and um, um, created a lot of interest. But surprisingly, that um, has has brought me back into um, looking at religion in a very different way through a a scientific lens. Um, So I think I'm on my ninth ninth book at the minute, and I I think my next book's going to have to be um, a novel because 
to take things forward, I need to speculate, uh, which you can't do in uh, too much, at least uh, in a in, in a book that's based on facts. So I think I'm starting to get ideas of um, what this is all about and what we're going to do next, and maybe I've got to put that down in uh, in a novel format. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, that sounds interesting. And I, again, I, uh, there's a lot of, I mean, I'm lucky that on, uh, when I do this show, I get to read a lot of original books. And I think that uh, Christopher Knight's God's Blueprint is one of the best books in this field. It, it, he does break new ground. It's well-written, understandable, and it's also scientific. And I think uh, science is about looking at the evidence and, and following that trail wherever it leads and we, I think that, and I think God's blueprint shows that when you follow that evidence, it does lead to a mind, a God behind the scenes. And I hope that we come to the conclusion at some point that this is a good thing, both for science and religion. This is Philip Camello. This is Conversations Beyond Science Religion. Thank you, and we'll see you next time. Been listening to Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, hosted by Philip Camella. To find out more about Philip and his book, The Collapse of Materialism, visit thecollapseofmaterialism.com.